If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it or to attend to the text that I think will be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and then right on into chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, 4, 7. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I know that you have gotten a heavy dose of Edwardsian theology. I hope that what you will get now in the next half hour is faithful biblical exposition. I do believe that all that you have heard from this pulpit has been true and reflects the scripture. I hope that it will be more manifestly biblical because of our exposition this morning. As you remember, I'm responding to an objection. The objection after I lifted up the centrality of joy in the deity and the centrality of joy in our glorifying him, I raised the objection, where was the cross in all of that? Where was the gospel in all of that? Where was the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the ground of the righteousness of Christ alone. And where was regeneration in all of that? And so that's what I'm responding to. Focus with me now for a few minutes on the root of Jonathan Edwards' God-entranced vision of all things. It's rooted, it's sunk in Three levels of salvation that I see, especially in verses 4 and 6. The reason that Edward's vision of all things is so God-centered and so God-exalting and so God-entranced is that each of the three levels that are mentioned in these two verses, verse 4 and verse 6 of 2 Corinthians for he is sovereign, he is decisive, he is beautiful at each of the three levels. Let me read with you verse 4, and I'll point out the three levels briefly, and then we'll come back and let Edwards do the exposition. Verse 4, in their case, those who are perishing, that is, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Now watch very carefully here and see if you see three levels in these next words. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now notice the close parallel in verse 6. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, now notice the parallels, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me just point out the parallels very carefully as you look at verse 4 and 6. Both verses have the term light, the light of the gospel, the light of the knowledge. The word gospel is parallel to the word knowledge in verse 6. The light of gospel corresponds to light of knowledge. So the gospel he has in mind here is a a proclamation of, of something that can be known. And then the parallel of the glory of Christ in verse 4 to the glory of God in verse 6, followed by words that make plain that the glory of Christ and the glory of God are the same glory. In verse 4, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and in verse 6, the glory of God, who or which shines out from the face of Christ. When you come face to face with Christ, as you read his history in the Gospels, you come face to face with God and the glory of God. So I hope you see the parallel structure of verse 4 and verse 6. Now here are the three levels of salvation that I want to talk about. We'll start with the deepest level. I have them... Uh, levels is not the ideal phrase. I apologize. You pick a better phrase. I'm going to start with the deepest level and move up. The deepest level of salvation is in the phrase, the glory of God in the face of Christ in verse 6, or the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is the objective glory of of God. Dr. Packer referred to this word kavod or glory having these multiple layers of meaning. The glory in its intrinsic beauty, the glory emanating out, the glory, Edward's word, remanating back, and all of that a Bible use of glory. This glory is The glory of Christ, the image of God. The glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the objective reality that's out there in Christ and in God. Now I call this the deepest level of salvation. Because you can't go beneath this on your way to hope and joy. There is no deeper reality, there is no higher or greater value than the glory of God in Christ. When you have this, you're at the end of your quest, you have come home. The glory of God is not a means to anything greater. You don't step on it on your way to anything This is ultimate reality. All true salvation ends here, not before, not beyond. There is nothing beyond, and everything before is not good enough. This is the end of salvation. This is salvation. The glory of God in Christ is what makes the gospel gospel. The glory of God in Christ, seen and finally possessed and being, as it were, swallowed up into, is what makes the good news finally good. Nothing short of it is the end of the gospel. That's level one. Level two. I'm a sinner. And will be incinerated by that glory if I go there by myself in my righteousness. We need gospel events. We need something to have happened. So you see in verse 4 the word gospel. The light of the gospel. 
And you see knowledge in verse 6, the light of the knowledge. I need to know something. Something had to have happened in history that I can know that will somehow create a good news for a sinner who, if I were to approach the ultimate goal of the gospel, I would be consumed, destroyed, incinerated, because I'm so unworthy, have been such a rebel. And therefore, we have this word, gospel. That's level two. We'll come back and talk about what it is. Level three. I don't want the gospel. I hate the gospel. I hate God. Why? I have all I want. Nobody would come to the gospel unless... Light dawned in their hearts. So now we have light. This is the third level of salvation. Verse 4, light of the gospel. Verse 6, light of the knowledge. And then back up to the beginning of verse 6. And you see the most clear statement of this miracle that has to happen for me because in my fallenness, I just don't want the gospel. The cross is foolishness to me. The glory of God is boring to me. And I'm just not interested until God, who said at the beginning of creation, let light shine out of darkness has, in a corresponding, miraculous, sovereign, creator way, shown in my heart to give light. And suddenly, I see glory, beauty, truth in what I once had called foolishness and a stumbling block. Now, those are the three levels that need to be opened. Those are the three levels in which the God-entranced vision that you've been hearing from every speaker is rooted. Seeing, savoring, enjoying the glory of God is at the bottom. Then because we are guilty, hell-deserving sinners, there is Christ coming into the world to save sinners, proclaimed as gospel. And as it arrives to people who are the least interested in it and don't want it and are rebels against it, a work of creation happens called light, spoken by the sovereign God. Those are the three levels. Let's let Edwards now talk to us. Because he loved these levels, he understood these levels, he delighted in these levels, because he was a sinner. Level number one, the deepest level of salvation, the glory of Christ. Edwards believed that the glory of God in Christ was displayed, manifested most clearly in the gospel events, the work of Christ in coming and living a perfect life and dying and rising and ascending and reigning and interceding. He believed that great glorious work was the best display of the glory of God, which we will contemplate forever. He believed that that gospel of Christ's saving activity carried in its glory its own evidence and was self-authenticating. So that when you saw the glory of God in it, you knew you were seeing the glory of God in it. Let me read you the way he puts it. Thus, the soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God with any argument, without any argument or deduction at all, but 
It is without any long chain of arguments. The argument is but one. And the evidence direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel. But by one step. It's divine glory. In other words. When the gospel is faithfully preached. And Christ. Living a perfect life. As our spotless high priest in righteousness. And laying himself down as a perfect lamb. And raising himself up. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I will take it again. Rising up, proving, ascending. When that gospel is faithfully preached. In the power of the Holy Spirit. A divine glory shines out through it. So that the spiritual eyes being illumined by this light may ascend by no long chain of argument to an absolute certainty this is of God. Oh my. How miraculous and supernatural is the gospel. Edwards labored in his preaching To put the glory of Christ on display in the gospel. Perhaps one of the best places. If you bought anything of Edwards. And if you bought the two works. It's in there. Maybe one of the best sermons he ever did. Was the excellency of Christ. I've preached my version of it. Several times to my church. Over the 23 years. They don't know that. (laughs) You don't know that. But I did. He took his text. From Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, where Christ is described as the Lion of Judah. And the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Lion of Judah, Lamb slain. And he says, here's the doctrine he draws out. There is an admirable conjunction of... Of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, the reason I'm focusing on this. I'm going to read you the summary of his sermon that he himself wrote. The reason I'm, I'm focusing here to get at the glory. Is because I do believe when I talk about the self authenticating Christ in the gospel. The self-evidencing Christ in the gospel. I don't mean there's nothing you can say when you're sharing the gospel. And he's just got to do it miraculously without the words. I don't mean that. Edwards didn't mean that. No gospel preacher has ever meant that. We mean we try to display with our inadequate language the diverse excellencies which when they come together strike the hearer illumined as inimitable on planet earth by the resources in human nature. And therefore real, true, authentic of God. Lion and lamb. And then he just worked these for probably 45 minutes. And I'll do it in 30 seconds. Here he goes. Meeting together in Jesus Christ. Are. Infinite highness. And infinite condescension. Infinite justice. And infinite grace. Infinite glory and lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Deepest reverence towards God and equality with God. Infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under the sufferings of evil. An exceeding spirit of obedience With supreme dominion over heaven and earth. 
absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation and self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. And on and on we could go in declaring the excellencies, the diverse convergence of excellencies in our self-authenticating Savior. Do not be ashamed to tell people of Christ. He will handle his being seen. That's the glory of Christ. To see him and to be with him and to enjoy him is our final and all-satisfying salvation. The end for which we were made to spend eternity, to use Sam Storm's words, in the joy's eternal increase, and to use Packer's and Lewis's phrase, the eternal enlargement of our enjoyment of that glorious Christ is the end of salvation and the deepest level of our salvation. However, I am a sinner, and so are you. I am guilty, and I deserve everlasting punishment in hell because my sins are against an infinitely holy God, and therefore they are infinitely heinous, and therefore they deserve an infinite punishment. So I will never enjoy the glory of God because I will spend eternity in hell, cut off from the glory of God unless he has done something, unless he has done something to save me, save me for his glory, to enjoy his glory, to see his glory. And what he has done is called the gospel. So, level number two, the level of the gospel. Second Corinthians 4, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Edwards loved, because he was a sinner, oh, how he knew his sin. Oh, how he knew his hell. And oh, how he knew his heaven. And because he knew his sin and his hell so well, he loved the double truth, the double truth that Christ satisfied the wrath of God by dying in our place and that Christ performed a perfect righteousness which God reckons to us by faith alone. The double truth is the heart of the gospel. Both are crucial. Edwards was jealous for the whole glory of God. The whole glory of God in Christ. He was jealous that Christ get glory as my substitute sacrifice. As my substitute sin bearer. As my substitute punishment. As the one who bears the curse and the wrath for me and absorbs everything that would have crushed me eternally in hell. He loves to magnify Christ as the one who does that. And he loves to glorify Christ as the one who comes to believers and imparts to them a sanctifying righteousness. And makes us degree by degree into the image of himself and the glory of his father. Real moral change wrought by Jesus' spirit. He loves to magnify the glory of his Savior in those two ways. And he loves to glorify his Savior who wrought out for him, lived out for him a perfect obedience and righteousness demanded from me by God, which I never have nor ever can perform, which will then be by 
grace alone, through faith alone, imputed to me freely as the only ground of my acceptance. He loved to magnify the whole glory of Jesus, not two-thirds of the glory of Jesus. He loved the doctrine, the truth, the reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, grounded on the righteousness wrought by Christ alone. And oh, how we ought to love our Savior's whole work. It ought to be our song in the night. I'll stick this in. Perhaps it will be significant. I was standing with the choir back here. and They're scattered all over the place now. Praying with them before. And I didn't say it, but I thought this. Um, we're praying for you. And uh, exulting in the gospel. And I thought, and I should have said, some of you are going to sing at my funeral. Please sing at my funeral. Chuck. Have a big choir. And know this, that at that funeral, or as any of us walk toward it through the hospital bed, or through old age, let us at those funerals and on those hospital beds love this work. This wrath-bearing, sin-bearing work This imputed alien righteousness of Christ, which I never could have performed, never in eternity could I be a righteous person because I will always be the John Piper who sinned. The cumulative Piper will always be a sinful Piper. There is no hope of acceptance with God in me and what I am. I must be clothed in an alien asbestos righteousness, transparent to the glory of God that can take me into the flame of that six trillion degree centigrade holiness and enjoy it instead of being consumed by it. I've got to have another righteousness. Oh, Edwards loved The gospel. You know why? Don't be afraid of those awful sermons you're going to see about hell and damnation. He loved the gospel because he felt so the weight of damnation. Listen, Mrs. Edwards. If it be allowed that it is requisite that great crimes should be punished with punishment in some measure answerable to the heinousness of the crime because of their great demerit and the great abhorrence and indignation they justly excite, it will follow that it is requisite that God should punish all sin with infinite punishment because all sin as it is against God is infinitely hateful to him and so stirs up infinite abhorrence and indignation in him. And there are two ways that God can settle these accounts. Either that abhorrence and that just indignation against my rebellion and my sin and my hardness of heart can be poured out on his son, my substitute, At the cross. Or it can be poured out on me. In my unbelief. In hell. Forever. Those are the only two options. If God is to be just. And praise be to his name. He did not just leave the second option to us. At the cost of his own son. God did not spare Hear that word and the heart of God. God did not spare his own son. 
of two of mine sitting down here. I have four sons. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him from his father was the chastisement that made us whole. And by his stripes we have everlasting healing. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our rebellious own ways. And the Lord in unspeakable mercy has laid on him the iniquity, the wrath, the curse, the guilt of us all. And he loved, he loved the double truth Not only the satisfaction of God's wrath by the sin-bearing Son, but also the performance of a righteousness on my behalf, which would grant me a title to heaven. In other words, not only is my title to hell canceled, but my title to heaven is provided. Let me read this for you. This is Edwards. We are accepted and approved of God as heirs of salvation. And we now know the deep fullness of that word as heirs of salvation. Not out of regard to the excellency of our own virtue or goodness or any moral fitness therein. But only on the account of the dignity and moral Fitness of Christ's righteousness. He loved the double truth of the gospel. Let God speak. That I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. For Christ is the end or goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. The obedience of one man made many Sinners, so also the obedience of one man will make many righteous. Double glory here. The glory of Christ as our sin-bearing substitute and the glory of Christ as our righteousness, which commends us to God Sufficiently, and without which nothing can commend us to God. That's level two of our salvation, the gospel. There's another problem now. There's another problem. The natural mind, that is the fallen mind, without any influences from the Holy Spirit yet, The natural mind, worldly, does not want to be saved. It doesn't want to be saved the way I have defined salvation. The way Paul is defining the gospel of the glory of Christ. Oh, the natural mind wants out of hell. And will do anything you tell him to do to get out of there. Pray any prayer, sign any card, go to any meeting. The natural mind wants to be healed of diseases. Of course, no regeneration needed there. Everybody wants to be well. The natural mind wants to go to heaven to be with mom or wife or child. 
No spirituality in that. That's purely natural. Oh, sure. If salvation means escape from hell, a lot of nice things happening in this life, and heaven with lots of either virgins or reunion with mom or eternal golf or something like that, everybody without any new birth would want that. And if you offer it in those terms, would probably... Take it, and you can build big churches that way. Level three is the level of regeneration, which is necessary because none of those things are salvation. Enjoying forever with an eternal enlargement, Christ who is the image of God, is salvation. And nobody on planet Earth wants to go there and do that. Nobody loves Christ more than they love being praised by men. Nobody loves Christ and delights in Christ more than sex and lust and pornography. Nobody loves Christ more than succeeding at the job so that people look with favor upon us. Nobody loves Christ more than wife and children and family. There's nobody that wants to be saved. If salvation means enjoy Christ more than anything. And so in our rebellion and our darkness, we need to go to verse 6 and see what has to happen. And pray as you go that it would happen to you if it hasn't already. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now you see that's an allusion back to creation. So the analogy with what must happen in my heart is to the creative work of God out of nothing on the first day. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The way anybody gets converted... The way anybody comes to see and savor the glory of Christ as their greatest treasure and their sweetest joy is that God sovereignly causes light to shine in the hearts so that we're no longer stumbling about in the darkness, feeling a cross and saying, stupid, ugly, boring but the light comes on and we see a Savior giving himself for us. We see a God reaching out to us with his arms wide saying, faith alone, trust alone, just fall into my arms as your treasure. And we say, how can we not? Which is all that Calvinists mean when they say irresistible grace. We don't mean any yanking around against anybody's will. The solution, I mean... What we need is, is not free will. We need wills made free. We need, we need that our, our heart, we're so enslaved to pride and movies and sports and scholarship and ministry maybe and family. We're just enslaved to bad things and good things so that we can't even conceive in our minds of Delighting in God above all things because we're so enslaved in what we will. We must be set free. We must experience the words of Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And that word creates obedience. Lazarus, the dead man, obeyed the command of the sovereign Savior. That's how anybody gets saved. Only it happens here in this verse with light. Let there be light. 
And suddenly all the darkness that distorts reality and makes the fleeting pleasures of sin, which are poison, taste like sweet wine, all the darkness flees. And we say, how could I have ever given myself to that? And then we look at the fountain of everlasting life and we say, how could I have ever committed such blasphemy as to turn away from that and try to drink that arsenic. Oh, forgive me. I am so sorry. That's where repentance comes from. When we see, finally, by the illumination, what horrors we have committed in loving the unlovely. Edwards calls it regeneration. It's a fancy word. You know the The biblical word, it's being born again. We must be born again. He calls it a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. That's the title I gave to this message. A divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. I think that's what you're reading in verse 6. Let there be light, and light immediately is imparted to the soul. And what was once regarded as folly and a stumbling block becomes the wisdom of God and the power of God. Listen to Edwards describing regeneration. The first effect of the power of God in the heart of regen- in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense to cause it to have a relish for the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. That's how you became a Christian. You didn't have to know that. I hope now that you know it, you'll give Christ more glory. You'll give your Father more honor. You'll give the Spirit His due. Before regeneration... Before God creates the new taste for Christ, money, comfort, ease, security, sexual stimulation, food, success, family, productivity, and the praise of men tasted better than Christ. And after regeneration, they don't. Something has happened. God has shown in our hearts. Everything is illuminated. And the pleasures of this world are seen to be fleeting and suicidal. And God is seen to be permanent and infinitely satisfying. What we once thought was bloody, boring cross turns out to be the beautiful treasure chest of holy joy. Now I'm moving to Friday night's message to make the connection. Edward says, the change that takes place in a man when he is converted is not that his desire for happiness is diminished. It is only regulated. Say it another way. When you're born again, Your desires for happiness are not diminished, contradicted, thrown away, said to be sinful. They are simply now, miraculously and spiritually, given a whole new taste and direction. Spiritual things, God himself, Christ, the cross, the glorious work of redemption, become your portion. And you say with the psalmist, you have shown me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's my conclusion. I argued Friday night that Jonathan Edwards' God-entranced vision of all things is essentially this. God is glorified not only in his glories being seen, but being rejoiced in. 
And I drew out these implications. Our passion for satisfaction in God is a barometer of our passion for his glory. Since he is glorified in our being passionate for joy in him. Our joy in him is the barometer of our glorifying him. And I drew out this implication which follows from that. Not to pursue your joy in God is an insult to his glory. And the objection I raised was where in all of this talk is the cross? Where is justification by faith? Where is regeneration by the Holy Spirit? To which objection I now sum up the answer that we have already seen. By the cross, that is, by the bloodshedding and the completed righteousness of Christ, the wrath of God was removed and the great obstacle that it interposed between me and everlasting joy was taken away. His suffering became my punishment. His obedience became my righteousness. The curse of the law was born by Christ in his dying and the demand and command of the law was performed by Christ in his living and dying so that the curse that was on me and the righteousness that was demanded from me is now Christ. If somebody asked me on my dying bed, what about the curse? On sin, and you're a sinner, I would say, Christ is my curse and has taken it from me. And if they say, where's the righteousness that you've performed, you proud, imperfect father, husband, pastor, grumbler, tell me that. That's what Satan will say when you're dying. And if you do not have ready, Christ is my righteousness. Then... The objection will stand. What has all this joy talk to do with you, John Piper? It had nothing to do with me unless a door has been opened into paradise through Christ. It has everything to do with the cross. The cross is my only hope of everything you've heard in this conference. Because of sin. And standing in the way between me and everything Edwards has held out to me and all the talks that you've heard is my disinterest as a carnal, fallen human. I don't only have guilt, I have rebellion. I still want it. Therefore, I not only need the cross work of God in his providing a sacrifice to absorb his wrath and his providing a righteousness to satisfy his demand. I need that. I can't even begin to have any title to his presence, but I need another great work of salvation in my life. I'm a rebel who hasn't the least interest in coming to receive all this joy that you've been talking about. Frankly, it sounds very boring to me. I want to just get out of this room and get to the game. And there's only one hope then, and that's regeneration. The one who said, let there be light coming now in this room as we close. And doing a miracle by the gospel. Through the Spirit, let there be light. And there was light. So, the cross, justification by faith, regeneration, what has that to do with this?
answer everything. Because without the cross, without justification by faith alone, without regeneration, I have no access to the goal for which I was created. Namely, to display the glory of God in my everlasting increase of enjoyment in him. I have no access and no desire if it were not for the cross and justification and the regenerating work of the Spirit in my life. It's a great gospel, my friends. I know that the vast majority of you revel in it and would like now to sing once more about it. So, I'm going to pray. Chuck's going to come. And I'm going to let you tell the Lord how glad you are as we sing. But let's pray first. Father, I pray now for the miracle. Perhaps for some, it happened in the twinkling of an eye as the word was being spoken. For others, they will go home now. And tonight, late, they'll be alone. And the thought will come. Maybe I should think about this. Maybe I should pray. Maybe I should get out a Bible. And it would happen tonight. God, let it happen. Let none come under the hearing of this gospel and not see light. The self-evidential self-authenticating beauty of Christ who brings together such diverse excellencies. Oh, Christ, we worship you. We are so glad that thine eye diffused a quickening ray. My chains fell off and I rose And I went forth and followed you so that there is now finally no condemnation. Let's stand and sing it one more time.